Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor and what a gift it is to have you guys with us here today. A couple things I want to share with you before I get going. First, we are just three weeks away from Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday. I'm so excited about Easter this year, you guys. We're doing two services for Easter this year. We have a 9.30 a.m. and an 11 a.m. service. You want to get here early, get your kids checked in, and you want to be seated when it starts. You don't want to miss a second of this service. We've been working on it. It's going to be incredible. My favorite part about Easter service this year is going to be baptisms. I can tell you that right now. We're doing baptisms right here during worship, and so uh, you, you guys, you got to see it. You got to come be a part of it, and listen, if you're in here and you have never been baptized, or you were baptized a long time ago, and you've come to know Jesus since then, or really know him since then, the Bible says it's your next step, that your next step is clear, and it's easy, and it is an act of obedience to Christ to be baptized. It, it's like our public profession of faith. It's the way that we let the world know and that we tell the Spirit that we are one with Him. And so baptism is huge. If you haven't been baptized, please sign up to be baptized on Easter Sunday. Ain't no better time to do it. Uh, you can sign up online at gatherashfield.org slash baptisms and let us know and we will dunk you in the holy hot tub. Come on, somebody. We're going to take it. I'm, I'm not going to keep going on that one. But we're going to get you in the, in the holy hot tub on Sunday and it's going to be awesome. Well, hey, we're in uh, week three of the book of Jonah. We've been going through this book chapter by chapter. It's a four-chapter book. It's a four-week series. and uh, it, It's been a lot of fun. And so today, really, I just want to jump right into chapter two. Let's get right into the text, chapter three. Look at chapter three, verse one. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Little recap, okay? In case you've missed it or you, you weren't here or you don't know, Jonah's a prophet, a minor prophet, okay? Just a little guy, little minor, praise your friendly neighborhood prophet. He's prophesying to villages and towns, and God gives him a major prophet assignment, which is to go to the capital of Assyria, the city of Nineveh, and tell them that they've got 40 days to get their act together or they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And Jonah says, that doesn't sound like a fun assignment. So he said, I'm going to go away from that. He leaves. He runs. He tries to go to a place called Tarshish, and that's far away from Nineveh. And he gets on a boat, and then there's a storm, and the storm is really bad. God sent the storm. So Jonah says, the only way to save the boat and the crew and to stop the storm is for me to get out of the boat. So Jonah gets out of the boat. He has the sailors throw him overboard. He gets swallowed up by a great big old fish. I don't know. I don't understand how it works either. It just worked, okay? He got ate up by a fish. He was in the belly of the fish for three Three days and three nights. I want you to picture the Disney movie Pinocchio, okay? He's sitting on a little wooden raft with a candle there and a cricket singing songs to him. A dream is a wish, your heart... Is that... That's a different movie. All right. Um, yes. All right. And so Jonah's in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and he's begging God. He's talking to God. He's, he's praying like he's never prayed before. And then on the very last day, he says, God, I submit to your will. Whatever you would do with me, I accept your call. And boom, the fish, the fish 
vomits him up onto the shore. I mean, it's just disgusting. He's covered in fish guts and saliva. He's gross. He smells horrible, but he has been redeemed. And so we find Jonah in chapter 3, accepting his fate, willing to follow the call of God and go to the city of Nineveh. And it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse 5 says the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. The sackcloth thing, don't get hung up on that. That's a cultural thing. Back in those days, a way that you would express uh, repentance and humility was to wear clothes that were basically burlap sacks. You're, You're wearing a sack to express to the world that you're in mourning, you're showing humility, and you are repentant. Okay, So they're in sackcloth. The king declares everybody's going to fast. Do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently upon God and let let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Because who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. What a powerful chapter of scripture. Uh, Three things that I want us to learn from this text today, and that's all. Number one, the word came a second time. The word came a second time. There's power in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. We've talked about this throughout the series. Uh, Mikey talked about the story of Jonah is the story of the Bible. There is running and pursuit. Running and pursuit. We run from God and God pursues us consistently throughout Scripture. We fall, God lifts us up. Uh, Jonah is called. He's called. He's given a mission by God. He rebels against that calling. So God calls him a second time. The book of Jonah has a recurring theme of redemption. It's a piece of the bigger picture of Scripture, which also has a recurring theme of redemption. We see it all throughout the pages of the Bible, this idea that there is redemption for the people who want it, for those who are looking for it. I believe Jonah is a true story about a real prophet, but God used Jonah and his story as a parable illustrating the relationship between God and Israel and ultimately between God and man. The Bible is filled with this kind of redemption story. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, God creates man and woman and sets them up in the garden to work it and have dominion over it. Uh, They have a job to do. Their job is to work this garden. 
He calls them to one thing specifically. Their calling in the beginning is really just to work the garden, but to be in relationship with God. And they have one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But man goes the opposite way of the direction God calls him. He eats the fruit. He betrays the one rule. God shows compassion to man. Uh, Just as he shows compassion to Jonah when Jonah jumps out of the ship and is rescued in the belly of this fish, the moment that Adam and Eve betray the one rule that God gives them, they realize they're naked and they go and they hide in their shame. And In Genesis chapter 3, it says that God made them clothes to wear. That even though they broke the rules, his first act for them was not an act of punishment. It was an act of compassion. He says, if you feel shame, then I will cover your shame. They go on and some generations later, God gives, them, uh, gives man, humanity, an offer of complete redemption. It comes through a man named Abraham. God tells Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation whose descendants will outnumber the stars. And he calls Abraham to really the same calling that he gave to Adam, a relationship with God. Be in relationship with me. I am choosing you as my people and I will be your God. We will be in relationship together. The relationship between God and Abraham moves forward and it leads to Jesus through whom we are offered access back into the paradise we were created to live in. Life in relationship with God. The recurring theme of the Bible, not just Jonah, is the story of redemption and renewed relationship. You see it over and over and over. There's a hundred smaller stories just like Jonah's within the pages of Scripture. Calling, rebellion, redemption, and calling is the common theme throughout the thread of Scripture. We see this pattern consistently repeated through First and Second Kings, the book of Judges. We see it in one of my favorite examples of God's redemption and the way that he does it in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John tells the story of Jesus through the eyes of John the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest friends. And in that book, there's a, 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 a man named Simon Peter. Simon, who Jesus renames Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends alongside John who wrote the book. Well, Peter betrays Jesus in the moment that Jesus needs him the most. The night that Jesus is being tried to be crucified and killed, Peter says three different times that he's never even met Jesus, that he's never heard of him. He denies ever even knowing him. John's gospel tells us that after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, in one of his first interactions with Peter after that, he calls Peter a second time. They're having breakfast together on the beach, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Three different times, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Three times, Peter turns his back on Jesus three times he's offered redemption. The point is that the story of Scripture is consistent from start to finish. 
every single time you reject the calling of God, you turn your back on the relationship that he wants to have with you, every single time he offers you a chance at redemption. His word comes upon you a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time. You cannot outrun God. You cannot outforgive God. He is there and prepared to restore his relationship with you as many times as it takes. Jesus tells a story uh, when he's sharing, when he's preaching one day about the prodigal son. I, I spent a whole Sunday preaching on it just a few weeks ago. And in this story, there's a son who turns his back on his family and he squanders his inheritance. And he goes home just hoping to be made a servant. He's just got nowhere else to go. But his father was waiting for him, arms wide open, and he rushes to greet him. He hugs him. He puts his ring on his finger and he prepares a feast in his son's honor. He gives him complete redemption. I hope that as we study the book of Jonah and every week we talk about this idea of redemption, that this theme sets itself permanently in your heart. Because whether you are in a place right now where you are in need of redemption or you will be in the future, I hope that you remember that this is the story of Scripture. That you have a Father who loves you and who wants to redeem you, who has called you, given you a purpose, an assignment to do in this life. And you cannot be disqualified from that assignment. You may need to repent and return to it. You may need to seek forgiveness and turn your face back towards God, just as Jonah did in the belly of that whale. But you cannot be disqualified from the calling he has placed on you. The calling came upon Jonah a second time. I love that verse. Second thing this morning, the people repented. Look at this again. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Man, he must have been anxious. Can you imagine his blood pressure? He's walking through. This is a bad city, y'all. This is, this is a rough place. This is Detroit in the 1980s, okay? This is ro RoboCop is wandering around. This is a dangerous place. They're known for killing prophets and believers of God. It is not a part of Jerusalem, of Judea or Israel. This is Assyria, the enemy, the ancient enemy of the people of God. This man is walking around in this giant city. It takes three days to walk through it of the enemies of God proclaiming, you've got 40 days to live, everybody, and then God is going to destroy you. And he's just like, maybe he was like, you've got 40 days to live, everybody. 40 days, God's going to, he's going to wreck your world. You are really in for it. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That is not how anybody thought this was going to go. Jonah ran from Nineveh because he was certain he was being sent there to die. He thought the message God gave him, uh, that God was going to destroy the city due to its rebellion and sin, would lead to his death and then the deaths of every person in that city. He ran from it on that, on that belief. This place was so wicked that it had no chance at redemption. Jonah had grown up hearing the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's in Genesis. And in the story, there are two cities that are absolutely wicked to their core, filled with sin. 
And so God tells Abraham to get his family member out of there because he was going to destroy the cities because of their sin. But Abraham begged God not to do it. Please, God, don't destroy these cities. If I can, if I can find just a few righteous people within these walls. And God said, okay. But Abraham couldn't find anybody. Nobody in the city was righteous. And so the cities were destroyed. Jonah's thinking that's the fate of Nineveh. That's what God's going to do. A pillar of fire is coming on this place. He's there to proclaim doom to these people. And he's terrified. He thought for sure this was the end of him and the end of them. But after the whole debacle with the fish and the storm and all of it, Jonah had resigned himself to this fate. The word of the Lord came upon him a second time, and now he was ready to do just what God called him to do, no matter how hard it was going to be. And if he was honest with himself, he was kind of ready to see these people washed away. He was kind of rooting for it. We'll see more of that next week. We talk about chapter four. He thought, all right, you know what? They've got it coming. I'll tell them, and then I'll just watch God do it. But then things get crazy because they hear the word of the Lord, and they're moved by it. They respond to it. They begin to repent. A fast comes upon the whole city. Revival breaks out everywhere. Even the king, the king of Nineveh in Assyria, the constant enemy of God and God's people, repented of his sin and fast and called the whole nation to fast alongside of him. Nobody saw it coming. Everyone had written them off. Nobody expected this response, but it happened. And there's more stories like that within the context of Scripture as well. In the book of Acts, there's a man named Saul. And in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, he's there when a man named Stephen is stoned to death just for talking about Jesus, for sharing the gospel message. He becomes a martyr. Saul was a Pharisee, a Jewish leader who really, really hated Christians. Acts 9.1 tells you everything you need to know about Saul before he knew Jesus. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats about the Lord's, against the Lord's disciples. This man was an enemy of the church. Nobody who knew Jesus wanted anything to do with him. And everybody said, Let's not, there is no way that redemption is ever coming for Saul of Tarsus. But Jesus wanted something to do with him. A few verses later, Acts chapter 9, Jesus meets Saul on his way to arrest the Christians in a city called Damascus. And Saul is completely transformed by the encounter. He goes to a man named Ananias, a Christian in Damascus. And Jesus told Ananias Saul was coming. And Ananias, one, didn't believe it. And then two, didn't want it. I don't want it. No, this guy's going to kill me. I'm trying to, find, to make sure this guy doesn't know where I live when he gets to this city. And Jesus said, well, I already told him where you live. He's got your address. He's coming to your house. Get ready. Ananias, verse 17, it says, Then Ananias went to the house where Saul was and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, 
Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up, and he was baptized. And that's just the beginning of the story. It says that right away, he started preaching in the synagogue. He was supposed to go to those synagogues to meet up with the other Pharisees to round up the Christians. Can you imagine their surprise when he he gets to the synagogue and they're like, oh, thank goodness, Saul is here. And Saul says, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ, the living son of God. And they're like, no, 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 wait, this is wrong. And Saul would change his own name to Paul and go on to write a third of the New Testament, two thirds of the New Testament. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody was more shocked about the transformation of Nineveh than Jonah. He just did not think it was possible. He had written them off and had decided they were too far past redemption. I remember about eight years ago, uh, I knew a guy named Jacob when I was in the United States Coast Guard. I was in the Coast Guard about nine years. And uh, Jacob was basically the human version of a pit bull. I mean, just the meanest looking dude you've ever seen in your life. He, he, he had, at, at rest, his face looked like it was going to eat you, like a human cannibal. I'm just, I'm, I can't even, he was just a scary looking fella, okay? No hair anywhere on his body. I don't know where it went. It ran away, for all I know. He was built like a square. He was so muscular that he was just as wide as he was tall. He had tattoos everywhere, and that's normal now, but at the time I thought that surely means this man has a criminal record or a criminal past. Okay, uh, Jacob had grown up mean. He'll tell, he would tell you this long story about time he spent 10 years living on his own on the streets and it made him mean. And He joined the military because he wanted to fight somebody and he became one of our best law enforcement officers. And if you went on a boarding with Jacob, you were just like, oh goodness gracious, we're gonna fight somebody. I don't know who or why it's gonna happen. And he was just that kind of guy. He was tough as nails uh, and Jacob partied hard. I mean, he drank, you, you just, thought it looked like he was drinking water when he would drink alcohol. It did just filled up his legs from his toes up or something like that, how he could take it down. Jacob cussed with every single breath that came out of his mouth. He was just a tough, mean dude. And I remember thinking as a Christian at this unit, a young Christian, that uh, if, if I'm going to bring anybody here to Jesus, it surely is not going to be that guy. Goodness, I'm, please don't anybody tell him I go to church. I'm scared of him. And I remember, but everybody did know I, I went to church. And I told people and tried to share my faith as much as I could or whenever I could, just not with Jacob. And I remember one day Jacob said to me, Red wine, let's go to lunch. And I thought, well, I'm dead. <laughs> That's the end of me. Called my wife, said, Rael, I love you. I'm going to lunch with Jacob. We went and got a burger and we sat down and this man sat across from me and started telling me a story that absolutely broke my heart about a divorce that he had just gone through and losing custody of his kids and how hurt that made him. And I remember he, he was going through all this pain and I stopped him and I said, Jacob, what, why are you telling me all this, man? What's going on? And he said, because I'm around you every single day and you are so joyful and happy. And I have never in my life felt happy like that. And I need you to tell me right now 
what do I need to do to feel that? Because I'm tired of feeling hurt. I'm tired of feeling angry, and I'm tired of feeling pain. And I started, upset. I started weeping in this burger joint. And I shared everything that Jesus had done in me and for me and with me, with this man. And he wept. And he said, do you think it's possible for somebody like me to become a Christian? And I said, yeah, man. This is exactly what God does. And we prayed and he accepted Christ in this diner. He joined my church there in California. And within four weeks, he was serving in our nursery, holding the babies, you guys. Right? Can you imagine dropping your baby off with the human version of a pit bull? Okay, just put that thing in his arms, and he just rocked. He just loved it so much and served the Lord with all of his heart. And I just wonder who in your life you thought anybody but them. Or I wonder who's thought that about you. I wonder if you've ever felt too far from redemption and just thought it couldn't be me. Or if you have a family member, a friend, or a coworker who you would never even dream, who you hope doesn't ever find out that you go to church because there is no way, there is no way they could enter into a relationship with God as well. I wonder if you've ever held your tongue about going to church or about what you believe because we live in Nineveh. And if they find out what you believe, you'll be dragged out into the streets and stoned. Or at least it'll feel that way. Maybe you've got somebody in your life who desperately needs Jesus, but you've never shared Jesus with them because you've already recorded their response in your mind. Never say somebody's no for them. You cannot answer a question that you haven't asked. The people repented. Your people might too. It's time to invite them, to invite them into church, to offer them the opportunity you were once offered. It's time to bring them into this space so that they can hear and know Jesus as well. And if you are the one that said they would never believe, who people have written off, this story is about how big the redemption of God is. Even you can follow him. He's waiting on you. The last part of this chapter is so important for us to understand. Verse or Number three, God's wrath relented. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Somebody in here this morning needs to read those words again. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. I hope that you can see the whole character of God laid out in this book. He is not vengeful or mean. He is not disapproving or angry. He's not shaking his head at you, just waiting on you to mess up. He's not distant. He's not unapproachable. He's compassionate and gracious and loving and kind. The people of Nineveh were murderous and evil. They were living as far from God as they could get. But Our God is a God of justice, so he was going to bring justice to them for their sin and for their wickedness. It was Jonah's job to warn them. 
God sent Jonah because no matter how far you run from him, he always gives you a chance to turn around. He's going to send a Jonah after you. And turn around is just what they did. The people showed humility and repentance and a genuine heart desire to change. And so God relented. It's not the only time in Scripture that God does that. There's this amazing story in Numbers. I, I do a, a Bible reading plan called The Bible in One Year, and I always joke about this time of year because you got to read through Numbers. Was, where's my Numbers people? Anybody love the book of Numbers in here? You wake up in the day, and you're like, I'm going to get my inspirational passages from Numbers out and memorize them today. Uh, numbers chapter 1938 is my favorite uh, memory verse. It's 72,000 beef cattle. It's a great... It's a great verse to memorize. It'll encourage you when you need it. And uh, I've been reading numbers, and I came on this story, and I had forgotten how incredible it is and how incredible our God is. And, and so this is in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, numbers is, is taking place during the time when the people of God have been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They've been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they're rescued from that through Moses. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, oh my goodness, is there a better animated film? The soundtrack absolutely slaps, okay? Go listen to it on your way home. And so, let my people go, the whole nine yards, they come out, and then they come out of Egypt, but Egypt is still in them. They've got to find freedom inside of themselves before they can enter into the promised land because even though they're no longer slaves, they still live in a slavery mindset. God keeps them in the wilderness for decades to try and free them of all the chains they brought with them out of Egypt before they can enter into the promised land. And that's where number 16 takes place. They are in the depth of their chains and they don't want what God has given them. They don't trust him. They're disappointed about the direction he's taken. Him. And we wanted to follow God, but we wanted it to be easy, and we wanted it to be fun, and it is hard, and we are in a desert, and we don't want to be here right now is where they felt. Have you ever felt that way? And they rebelled against God, and they had decided they were going to kill the leaders that God had put in front of them, Moses and his brother Aaron, so that they could appoint their own leaders and go wherever the heck they wanted to go, not just wherever they were being told. And God was going to protect the leaders he had anointed and appointed. And so he says, I'm going to, Moses, I'm going to wipe these people out. They are a wicked and rebellious people. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start the whole thing over again with you and Aaron and whatever faithful few remain. So he says, I'm going to send a plague on them. And Moses and Aaron decide to get in the middle of that. They intervene on behalf of these people, these people who deserved the justice that was coming towards them, these people who seemed too far past redemption. Aaron and Moses said, I'm going to get in the way of them and on behalf of them. Number 1647 says, Aaron took the censer, incense, as Moses had ordered, and he ran into the midst of the assembly of people, the people who had assembled to kill him. And seeing that the plague had begun among the people, he offered the incense and made atonement on behalf of the people. 
And he stood between the living and the dead, and the plague was halted. That's a powerful story. God relented his wrath on these people because somebody else stood right in between the living and the dead and atoned on their behalf. God is merciful and kind and compassionate, and he relents. Ezekiel was a prophet at the end of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, and he was called during the Babylonian exile. That's the period about 500 years before Jesus, when God would allow the Jewish people to be conquered. It's an event that led them to the coming of Jesus. Ezekiel was the prophet right at the beginning of that exile. He said this in verse 30. I looked for someone, this is the words of God, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. The sin and the shame of the world deserved the justice of God, but God didn't want to bring that wrath even though we deserved it. He says, who's going to stand in the gap to save them? He's looking for an Aaron who is willing to come and stand in the space between the living and the dead and and offer real redemption, a new kind of redemption, redemption that's bigger than anything they had experienced so far. Who will stand in that space, in that place? And he found no one. Because the truth is, the sin and shame of the world deserved God's justice, and there was nobody worthy to stand in that gap. So God sent someone who was worthy. In the story of Moses and Aaron, it preaches real good for me to say, you got to go stand in between the living and the dead. You got to get out there and stand in between the living and the dead because they need you to atone for them. They need you to stand before. It preaches real good for me to say, go get in that gap. It needs to be you. God found nobody before, but you can raise your hand and say, it's me. I will stand in the gap of the Lord. But as I was reading through these passages this year, I was convicted and convinced that there is nothing I can do in that gap if I were to stand in it. I am not worthy to close the gap. If I go stand and in between the living and the dead, I just joined the dead. He sent somebody who was worthy to stand in the gap for you. He sent somebody who could make all the atonement that would ever be needed on your behalf. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived. It doesn't matter what kind of life they've lived. It doesn't matter how far gone you think you are, how far gone you think they are. It doesn't matter how wrapped up in their sin and their shame, in your sin and your shame you believe you are. Redemption is coming for you and it already came and his name is Jesus. That's the story of Jesus. As we get into the passion season and we think about what he's done for us, this is what he's done for you. Oh, but the story of Jonah is a beautiful story, but it, it's just the beginning. The city of Nineveh's redemption is incredible. It's beautiful. But God had a bigger purpose in mind. God's wrath is relented on you because somebody stood in the gap for you and atoned for you, and his name is Jesus. The story of Jesus is the absolute pinnacle of redemption. 
You deserved death because of your sin. You were created to live in relationship with God. It was the job given to all of us right there in the garden. Live here. Be in relationship with me. Work the garden. But sin separated us from him. All of us. So Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And became the sacrifice that atoned for all of our sin and made a way for us to re-enter relationship with God. Jesus stands in the gap for you and for me and for all the people that we've already said no for. And it is our job now, if you are already in his redemption, in his atonement, if you are living under the grace of Jesus Christ, our job is to be Jonah in this Nineveh. It is our job to walk the streets and say, something's coming, but you don't have to face it. There's a better story for you. There's redemption for you. There's peace for you. There's joy for you. There's forgiveness for you. Because God will relent on behalf of this city. It's our job to tell them that. So will you accept God's call as it comes on you for a second time or a third time or a fourth time or the hundredth time? The call to go and tell the world, to go and make disciples, to offer people a shot at redemption, a chance to be atoned for, to be made new, to be made whole. Two ways you can do it, easy ways. It's Easter season. Invite somebody to Easter. Do you know that people are 10 times more likely to say yes to you inviting them to church on Easter than any other day of the year? It's Easter. Invite somebody to Easter or invite them to Spring Fest and then to Easter. Spring Fest is going to be a great time. It's a good way to get people in the door. That's number one. Number two, and you can do this. Don't make it harder than it is. Share your story about Jesus with them. You've got people in your life and their eternity will be unlocked by what God has already done in you. You don't have to know the whole Bible. You don't have to be a good public speaker. You don't have to have any of those things. If you've been transformed by Jesus, then all you have to do is just recount the past. Recount what's already been done. I sat in that diner with Jacob. He did not need to hear the 6,000 different ways that I could affirm scripture is true and valid. He didn't need to know what happened in somebody else's life. He needed to know what happened in my life. All I had to share with him was my story, what Jesus had done to me, in me, with me, what I'd experienced and seen. And this man is forever changed because of it. You have that power. Somebody is ready and waiting to hear your story about what Jesus did in you. Accept the call. Do it. Do what you were made to do. Maybe you're in here today. You didn't know redemption was possible for you. and You just learned that it is. All you have to do is accept it. Jesus is reaching out with an outstretched hand, offering you freedom and redemption. All you have to do is reach your hand out and take it. We start that relationship with a simple prayer. And if you're in here today, ready to enter into a relationship with Jesus, 
then every head bowed, every eye closed, just pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I want to come home. I want to I want to be forgiven. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my shame. Forgive me for all the things that I've done. And today, God, I declare that I believe in you, that I need you, that I want you, and I give my life to you. Everything from this moment forward, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen.